Kitara. Well, thank you very much uh, for the privilege of being able to speak to you today. Um, as we start, I want you to discuss for one minute with your neighbour this question. What is more powerful, an idea or a story? Go. All right, I'll call you back in now. That was not long enough, was it? Um, and the reason that I asked you that probably unanswerable question was simply to get you thinking. Because today I want to talk about the power of a story. A story is a tale, a narrative, a yarn, an account, a testimony. You can read a story or write one. You can hear a story or tell one. The story you tell might be someone else's story, or it might be your own. You can tell a different story every day, or the same one, over and over and over. <laughs> Today I want to focus on, I'm just going to move that out of the way because I feel like, I might just move that over there a little bit, there we go. I feel like I need a space. I'll move that one that way. Today I want to talk about um, three things, um, the power of our own story to impart faith, that's going to be the first thing, secondly the power of listening to another person's story, and thirdly the power of knowing your part in God's big story. But first I'm going to tell you a story, and you can read along in 2 Kings chapter 5 if you wish, it won't be on the screen but you're most welcome to follow along in your own Bible. And as we read, why don't you allow the Holy Spirit to highlight something in the story for you as you read. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we open our arms to you this morning. We want to meet with you. We want to hear your voice. Amen. All right, 2 Kings chapter 5. Starting from verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. That's the country, which is actually now Syria. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, said the king of Aram. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 
6,000 shekels of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. They believed that if you wanted to worship a god, you had to worship in, in that god's country, so he wanted to take some of that country home with him so that he could worship God where he lived. But may the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. When my master, the king of Aram, enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. There's more to that story you can read later, but we're going to stop there. Why don't you just take one and a half minutes to just tell your neighbor what stood out to you in that story?
Okay. Once again, that was too short, wasn't it? Isn't this a great story? I really love the story, and there are some really rich pickings in the story. If you read it ten times, you could get ten different messages out of it. Let's look first at Naaman. I reckon he's a pretty likable sort of a guy. He's the commander of the army. It says that he's loved and respected by both the king and the people. He's a valiant soldier, but he has leprosy. Leprosy is a contagious disease that affects the skin, the mucous membranes, and the nerves, causing discoloration of the skin, lumps under the skin, and loss of sensation, which means people damage themselves without realizing. In severe cases, there, are, uh, there, are, um, there is disfigurement and deformities. These days we can treat it with antibiotics, actually, but not then. No doubt Naaman was desperate to be healed. Now let's look at verse 2. Here we are introduced to the next character in the story, the one who, in my opinion, is the hero. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Let's just unpack that a little bit. A young girl is in her village, and suddenly all hell breaks loose. There's people riding around on horses and shouting and injuring and killing people maybe and setting fire to things and snatching people up. And next minute she finds herself grabbed and tied up and before she knows it, she's being carried off on the back of a horse back to another country. Who knows where her parents are or even if they're alive. Pretty traumatic stuff for a, a young girl. No doubt there is grief and fear and post-traumatic stress. But after a time, she settles in with her new mistress, and she notices that the master of the house has leprosy, and she sees firsthand the anguish that has been caused by that leprosy. So, verse 3, she says to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Because she has heard the stories about Elisha the prophet, God's representative. Maybe she heard the stories from her parents. Maybe everybody in that country knew them, except the king. <laughs> Whichever it was, the stories had planted something in her, faith. She believed that the prophet of God could heal with God's power. And so she shares her stories with her mistress. And then something happens. Her mistress catches her faith. And so the mistress goes and shares the stories with her husband, Naaman, and he catches the faith. And then Naaman goes off to the king, and, and then the king says, yes, do it. He believes as well, and off they go. And so we get to verse 4. Um, oh, yes, we've covered that. Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him, what the girl from Israel had said, and the king said, by all means, go. So based on the recommendation of a slave girl, he sets off. I would suggest to you that he is very brave. And as we've read in the story, we won't go over it again, but basically things work out for Naaman. Um, he is healed of his leprosy. His faith is rewarded. And a very grateful Naaman takes home some earth so that he might 
regularly stand on that ground and worship the God of heaven. Can you imagine the story that circulated? The man so widely loved and revered in that country of Aram had been healed. And God's power and renown spread throughout that country. Now let's just remind ourselves how that whole story began. A young girl who had been abducted from her parents and sold as a slave told her mistress a story. Stories are powerful. Stories capture our imagination. They connect with people. And they have the potential to impart faith and send ripples far and wide. Can I just tell you three short stories from my own life? The first one is uh, the story of Corrie Ten Boom. I read in a children's ministry book about Corrie Ten Boom, who lived in sort of wartime um, Holland. And for two years, when she was five and six years old, she lived in a street, a rough street. There were bars in the street, and there were brawls and all sorts of characters that, you know, <laughs> you can imagine. And she, as a five and six-year-old, prayed for her street. And then they moved somewhere else. Many years later, she was um, at a camp for young Christian women, and I believe there's about 18 of them, and she discovered that every single one of those 18 girls had either lived at some stage on that street, or they had a direct connection to that street. Amazing. When I, heard, when I read that story, I thought, I'm going to start praying for my street. And so that's what I do. And I run a lot. And every time I go for a run from my house, when I come back, I run along the street, that's a short street, and I run past every house and I say, Lord, save, can you save at least one person in this house? Whether they, um, whether they lived there before or now or whether they will in the future, Lord, will you save at least one person from every house? When we get to heaven, there's going to be a meeting of the TRS, the Talbot Road Saints, and we're going to have a street barbecue like you've never seen before. I guarantee it, because I believe that, because I got the faith from that little story that I read in a book about Corrie Ten Boom. Number two story, the story of John Scott's shoulder. Um, John Scott had a knackered rotated cuff, and he couldn't lift his arm past about there, and he had lots of people pray for his shoulder on numerous occasions. Nothing happened. He went and got surgery, but the surgery failed. Still couldn't really lift his arm past about here. And many times, people prayed for him, and nothing happened. And then one day, some people prayed for him, and um, after they prayed, he realized he could lift his arm up to there. And so afterwards, he went up to testify about this, and he was telling a story, and he said, before I could only lift my arm to here, and now I can lift it up. Wow, look at that. And you know what? He went building. Like, that was a miracle. How many times had he prayed and nothing happened and nothing happened and nothing happened? And then one day, God heals him. And that story gives me faith to believe that even if I pray for someone and it seems like nothing happens, I'm not going to give up. And you shouldn't give up either. Pray until something happens. The third story is um, a story about a, a patient of mine. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it was on my heart to, I'm a GP, it was on my heart to start praying for my patients, but I was afraid for a long time. And finally I plucked up the courage, and I had this, this man um, was, was, was there with me, and um, he had uh, bowel cancer, it had spread into his abdomen and into his lungs, basically it was terminal bowel cancer. 
And t- at the end of the conversation, I, I just said, um, oh, look, I'm a Christian, and um, um, would you mind, could I pray for you? And he, and he, was, he said, well, that's interesting. Um, oh, um, tell me about which church do you go to? And he asked me a couple of questions, and then before I could pray for him, he was out the door. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'll go away and pray for him. And I did. I next saw him nine weeks later. And in the interim, he'd got sicker and sicker and sicker, but he'd been seeing the oncologist and the palliative care specialist and the surgeon, so he didn't need to see me. But he ended up fluid in his lungs, and he landed in hospital, which was unusual. You don't normally send people that are dying to hospital, and we send them to hospice. And in the hospital, he continued to get sicker, so he went to ICU. That was extraordinary. You don't send a terminally ill person to ICU. And in ICU, he got sicker again, and he was this much away from death, and they decided they'd try some other treatment. And remarkably, he improved, and he went back to the ward, and then from the ward, he went home. And nine days after that moment, I saw him. This is nine weeks after I said to him, can I pray for you? And the first thing he I went to visit him at home. The first thing he said as I walked in the door was, I nearly died last week, but I knew that you were praying for me. And I thought, whoa. And he said, I've started talking to God too. And I'm really hoping that that when I die, God will welcome me into his spirit world. And I said, said, well, you don't just have to hope. You, You can know. You can be certain. Can I tell you my story? That's a really good phrase to put in your toolkit. Can I tell you my story? I'm going to tell you what I told him. I said, I never... I never remember a time when I didn't believe in God. I was raised in a Christian family. My parents taught me to, to, to love God. But when I was eight years old, I was at a camp. And a man told a story. I'd probably heard it before. But he said that God loved me very much, but everyone had sinned. And our sins separated us from God. But if I asked Jesus, because he had died on the cross to, to take the punishment for my sin, and if I asked him, he would forgive my sin, and I could invite him into my heart, and he would be my Lord and Savior. I'm not sure I even really quite understood what that meant, but I knew that I wanted to do that, and so I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm not sure what happened next, but a few years later when I was in my early teens, It seemed like Jesus wasn't in my heart. It seemed that he was knocking at the door, wanting to come in. And there's a verse in Revelation 3, which it's Jesus talking. He says, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And that, for me, was exactly what it was like. It was like Jesus was knocking at the door. And so I decided that I would Invite Jesus in when I was 25. All the, good, all the fun things will have happened <laughs> by then, and that's probably a good time. But the knocking continued, and I remember lying in bed one night. Um, I still remember this vividly. I, I, was laying, I lay in bed, and I just said, Okay, Jesus, I surrender. Please come into my life. It was like this weight just lifted off me. I, just, I can still almost feel it now. Just the weight lifted off me. And Jesus has been close to me ever since. And that's the best decision that I ever made. So I told that story to this man. And then I said to him, would you like to ask Jesus into your heart? 
And he said, yes, I would. And so we prayed together. He prayed, a, in his own words, he prayed a simple prayer and he asked Jesus to come to his life. Four weeks later, that man died. But in the interim, he was so amazing. He was the most joyful person that I've ever met. It was just coming out of him. And he told all of his family that they all needed to ask God into their life. And then he died. I remember standing in my kitchen that night, washing the dishes and just thinking, yes, that man is in heaven right now. Because I had the courage to say to him, can I pray for you? Man. You know, I, I, feel, I find that story quite inspiring, even though it's my own story. Because <laughs> it makes me want to pray for more people. Because it was such a good feeling. And I tell you those three stories because... I want to encourage you to tell your own stories. It doesn't matter whether it's the story of how you got saved or whether it's the story of something that happened last week. Share your story. Stories move people and they impart faith. There's a counterbalance to storytelling, and I just want to touch on this briefly because of time, but it's the power of listening to another person's story. Have you ever had the experience of, of, of starting to share a story and you sort of open yourself up a little bit and then you realise that the person that you're talking to, actually, you know, they're not really very interested in your story. <laughs> uh, you know, it's sort of, it uh, doesn't feel so good. But, you know, when someone is really listening and they're genuinely interested, the feeling is completely different. Yeah. Truly listening to a person's story is powerful. Listening requires respect from you, but it gives dignity to the person. People won't care how much you know until you know, they know how much you care. And, and listening creates a line of communication and trust and opens doors. Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of those habits was this, seek first to understand and then to be understood. Very powerful. James 1.17 puts it like this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Someone has observed we have two ears but only one mouth. Even if there is no opportunity to tell your story, take the time to listen. It's part of the way of love. All right, so far we've looked at the power of a story to impart faith, and the power of listening to someone else's story. And finally, I want us to consider the power of understanding our place in God's big story. One of the most powerful things you can ever do is understand how you personally fit into God's big story. Understanding your part in God's big story will transform the way you think not just about yourself, but about others. Our story, uh, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, goes to the core of our identity. Did you know that you, you have a story that you tell yourself about yourself? You know, it affects what we believe about our value as a person. It affects whether we look forward with uncertainty or with excitement, with, uh, with fear or with confidence with boredom, or with purpose. And yes, life comes in seasons, and some seasons are definitely harder than others. 
But understanding God's big story and our place in that makes a huge difference in how we navigate those seasons. In New, the New Testament, in uh, Acts 9, you can read the story of Saul, whose name was changed to Paul. And this is a great little story to pull something out of. P- Paul, some of his letters to the churches ended up being part of the New Testament. Um, he was part of a religious group called the Pharisees who believed in the, the strict observance of traditional and written law. He was a passionate guy, but despite being intimately familiar with um, the Scriptures, the Old Testament, what we call now, he didn't realize that Jesus was the very one spoken about throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, he regarded Jesus as a threat. So after Jesus had been crucified, Paul set about persecuting all of his followers, both in Jerusalem and further afield. The problem was that in his mind, he had got the big story a little bit wrong. Let me just read from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. I wonder what that was like. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And just speeding through the story, basically, a man came and prayed for Saul, and something like scales fell off his eyes, and he could see it again, and he was immediately baptised. And picking up the story in verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. What a transformation. How did that happen? What was happening during those three days when Paul was sitting there blind? I imagine it like this. In Paul's mind, there is like a bookshelf full of books. And the books contain the story of Paul's life up to that point, along with all of his thoughts and ideas and memories and experiences. All of the ones that Paul had stored up over his life, and they're in this set of books. It's a bit like Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, those old things that you used to be able to buy. (laughs) And what I imagine is that during those three days, the Holy Spirit went through each of those books with Paul, one at a time. All the lies were replaced with truth. The wrong ideas were corrected. And Jesus assumed his role 
is the central character in the story. It was basically like a whole series of aha moments. Now Paul understood God's big story and his part in that story and the central place of Jesus in that story and in history. And that's why he was able to step out after those three days and immediately start arguing passionately that Jesus was the Christ because he now got it. So what is God's big story? Josh was going to help me out with some uh, slides now. I'm going to just tell the story briefly with some colours. Thanks, Josh. Gold is for God. God is perfect. He is holy. He is good. And he is love. Darkness is for sin. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and we are all tainted by it. We are broken, we do wrong, and we are wronged by others. Because we are unholy, we cannot come into God's presence. We would be destroyed. Red is for Jesus' blood. Jesus is God's son. God the son. He came to earth as a human being, lived a perfect life on our behalf, fulfilled all the requirements of the law for us, and was killed on a cross as us. He carried our sin and our brokenness in his body on the cross. He took the blame. He paid the price. White is for holiness. God offers it to us as a gift. If we accept his forgiveness and trust him to save us, he will make us clean, pure, and holy. Gold, again, is for God's presence. Having been made holy by Jesus, we can now come into his presence without fear or condemnation. God welcomes us. He He calls us. We can enjoy his love forever from now and into eternity. Purple is for the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends him to live inside of us, to be with us and to work through us. And green is for growing, growing closer to God, growing in love, growing in glory as God reveals himself in us. That's the big story. But what is your place in it? Because within that big story is your own personal story. Is the story that you tell about yourself true? Perhaps people have spoken lies into your life. Perhaps you've reached conclusions about yourself that are not actually true. And whether you've never invited Jesus into your life or have been following him for years, God loves you. And if you give him the opportunity, he will sit down with you like he did with Paul and just go through the story of your life and rub out the lies and replace those lies with truth, with his truth. And he will help you to be the person that he always intended you to be. Why don't you invite him in? 
Why don't you invite him to do that, to actually come in and rewrite the stories of your life? Can the band come up, please? During this talk, I've told seven stories, if you were counting. The first story was about a young Hebrew slave girl whose simple faith story touched one of the most powerful and respected men in the nation. The second story was about Corrie Ten Boom, a little girl who prayed for her street. The third story was about John Scott, who kept praying until finally something happened. The fourth story was my own story about plucking up the courage to ask my patient, can I pray for you? The fifth story was the story of me inviting Jesus into my life. The sixth story was about Paul and how God helped him replace the lies he believed with truth and transformed him. And the seventh story was God's big story told with colours. I really hope that at least one of those stories has kind of found a place in your heart and really touched you. And I hope that you will leave here today inspired to do three things. Firstly, to tell your story. Tell your story. Your story is powerful. Secondly, to put your listening ears on. Because listening to the stories of others is also powerful. And thirdly, just to embrace your part in God's big story. He loves you. You are precious to him. And he has a unique role for you in his big story. So step up. Come on, step up. Let's just pray, shall we? Thank you, Jesus, that we are not on the fringe of your big story. You came and died for us. You are the bridegroom and we are your bride. We are loved and treasured. Help us to walk in confidence, Lord, to play our part in your story with passion and to tell our story as often as we have opportunity that others might come to know you, Lord. Maybe um, you've never asked Jesus to come into your life um, today. Um, and um, maybe you'd like to just accept him and open the door of your heart and just welcome him in um, to forgive the things that you've done wrong, to restore the things that are broken, um, to be your Lord, to lead and direct and guide you. If, if you would like to do that this morning for the very first time, can I just invite you to just put up your hand just so I can see? I'd, I'd love it if somebody wants to invite Jesus into their life today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. anyone who wants to do that thank you thank you 
We're going to sing uh, a song. It's one of my favorite songs because it starts off, it sounds like a runner's song, you know. <laughs> Let the king of my life be the mountain where I run. Makes me want to put my shoes on and go running. <laughs> but, um, you know, while we're singing, if, if something in, this, in, in the message today, something in the stories has just touched you and you're just really wanting to um, press into those things and you'd just like somebody to pray for you or to bless you as you pursue them, then um, please feel free to come forward uh, during the song or after the service. Thank you so much for, for listening. Be strong. Tell your story.